0: It's my privilege to be able to open up the Word of God for us this day, the words that are from Him and are 100% truth, and there's much wonderful things to see in God's Word, and particularly in Luke chapter 2, where we're going to be today, if you'll find your place there, we've been celebrating what we call the, the great truth of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is, Him becoming man. And dwelling among us. You know, it's interesting the various gospel accounts and how they vary. in Matthew and Luke, uh, two examples that have chapters about all the surroundings and everything about the birth of Christ. The gospel of John, very few words. <laughs> the word was with God and became, anyway, the word became flesh in chapter 1 and verse 14. He gets right to the point. He dwelt among us and we beheld his glory The glory is the only begotten of the Father. We mentioned last week that those four words just speak volumes because the Creator, the one who created all things for his own glory, enters his own creation when he became a man. Uh, Galatians, again, 4.4, When the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his Son. So there was a particular time, in the realm of, of human history and the history of redemption in which God has ordained that it is time for His Son to enter His creation and to come on a mission. God became man. He, he really did become a man. And we see this in Philippians chapter 2. And I'll just read it. It says, Although He existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying Himself taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What defines Jesus' humility or what we refer to as his humiliation is the fact that he put on human flesh, he came in a lowly manner. He came as a servant for the good of others. He came not to be served, but to serve others. His humility in that Philippians passage is described by phrases like that he emptied himself, that he took on the form of a bond servant. He became obedient even to the point of death, and not just any death, a death on a cross. Jesus really did become the God-man, full deity, full humanity, yet one person. But he came for one particular purpose, and that was to save sinners. He didn't come so that we can adore nativity scenes and little, you know, images that are supposed to be the baby Jesus. But he came on a mission that he would live the perfect life, die the horrible death, and redeem his elect people. And if the virgin birth had never occurred, he would have never come into this world, um, and so that's what the wonder of Christmas. Now last time we began Luke 2, we looked at the first 12 verses or so, and um, just by way of, there's many here who weren't here last week, there's a census that is given that all must go and be registered for the census, Caesar Augustus. He reigned for about 44 years or so. The entire known world was ruled by Roman rule, and so all must submit, all must obey this. Even though David has royal blood flowing through his veins, he must submit to this. And there's many prophecies, we looked at some last week, that speak to this happening and the whole event of Christ coming into the world. It says in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 2 that Mary gives birth to his son, a firstborn son. And it's not with all the trappings of royalty. It's not with the red carpets rolled out. It's not in a palace. But how is it? In a stable, relative um, obscurity. And had it not been for the angels to come and with this anthem of praise to the shepherds, perhaps none would know. But, and we see also that Christ, for our sakes, He became poor. And so this little town of Bethlehem, the Son of God, enters Uh, Time and space taking on human form. And he's born and he's laid in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. And then, of course, we consider the shepherds, those who were faithfully discharging their duties. And an angel appears to them. Look in verse 8 and 9. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. We see that the angels, first of all, they don't appear to the scribes and Pharisees. They don't uh, even appear to those who are in some type of elevated social standing. But they appear to shepherds, perhaps some of the most despised men of the day, a despised uh, employment And that's who God, in His infinite wisdom, chooses to reveal this message. There's good tidings, the good news, and the good news is what? Verse 10, Do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, and He will be for all people. The good news is that a Savior is born. Verse 11, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so, as we come to verses 13 and 14, that scene that I've just spoke of is the single angel appearing to them. And now we're going to see something, this, this scene of great glory and great light be expanded a uh, thousandfold. So today we're going to consider verses uh, 13 to 20, mainly verses 14, verse 14 will be the main focus. We'll take up all of those verses. And we're going to see first the angelic praise and then the response of the shepherds. So let's pray before we read our text, and then we'll jump into it. Our Father and our God, we do bow before you as a people that are often amazed, as some of these people were in this day 2,000 years ago, bewildered, um, astonished at the events that are before us as they're recorded here. Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts of understanding Uh, minds that are clear that we can understand these things. Help the one that is speaking, O Lord, to speak clearly. We pray, Lord, that you would warm our hearts, that we would be amazed at the deep, deep love of Jesus for each one of us who is in Christ. We ask this for Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen. Okay, verses 13 to 20. Follow along with me as I read our text. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told to them about the child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back glorifying God and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as it had been told to them. First of all, we see this angelic praise that is revealed to men, revealed to sinful men. And the word that jumps out to me in verse 13 is the word, suddenly. We've already seen the word once, suddenly an angel appeared to them, right? And there was all the bright light. But here again, we see the word again, suddenly there appeared an angel, uh, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts. The word suddenly carries with it the idea of the implication of unexpectedness. You're already astonished because God's glory shines all around you as an angel has descended from heaven with the message about the long-awaited Messiah. You're already captivated if you're one of those shepherds. You're already thoroughly exhilarated and excited and, and, and on all of this, and then suddenly, there's more to come. With the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host comes. The word suddenly can mean a dramatic swiftness, as Hendrickson puts it. All of this divine splendor already being revealed to them, and now there's a further display of the glory of God as a host of angels now comes and descends on the plains of Bethlehem in the fields with the shepherds. Of course, the Word of God says that the testimony of two or three witnesses let every fact be established. God in His wisdom decides to give tens of thousands of witnesses, as it were, with this heavenly host. Another interesting fact here is the word for host here is actually the word for army. So here's a heavenly army that's able to accomplish any feat that God wants to send it to do, but this army announces peace that's what the army has come to do to announce peace well in verse 14 we see this wonderful phrase Um, you know it's on probably one-third of the Christmas cards that are out there it's the phrase we hear again and again and I want to slow down and really unpack this um, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased The emphasis is on the three nouns. The word glory, peace, and pleased. And there are some interesting things that are going on here. We need to consider these. And first of all, let me just say this. There are some translations that break this into sort of two lines. It really should be three lines. Okay, Glory to God on the highest, peace on earth among men, and then the third, in whom the Lord is well pleased. And we're going to unpack that in a minute. But the first and the second one, there's a contrast. One's in heaven, glory to God in the highest, right? And then peace among men. Men are on earth, so you have this contrast. You have the contrast um, there spoken of, of the glory of God, which is in heaven, of course, and then peace among men. And then the third phrase, which we'll look at in in a few moments, explains what this peace is like. How does it come? Who does it come to? And so we'll look at that. So first of all, glory to God in the highest. Glory to God. It's a necessary preliminary to real peace on earth. Of course, those of us who catechize our kids, the first catechism question is what? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. All heaven breaks bounds in this anthem of praise comes from the angels as they sweep down glory to God in the highest. Now, this doesn't mean in the highest degree, but it means above. It speaks of heaven. It speaks above the dwelling of men. It's, it speaks of the realm of God. Of course, we know that the angels are intimately acquainted with God and even the Son of God, Jesus Christ, um, since, they're, since they were created. You'll remember in Isaiah 6, we see the, the angels and the seraphim there. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You remember that scene when Isaiah was astounded because they saw the Lord high and lifted up on His throne? In Isaiah 6, if you're not familiar with that, read that today. But in John 12, John tells us that that was Jesus Christ sitting on that throne. That was Him. And so the angels are intimately acquainted with who Jesus Christ is. They're, they're, they're very acquainted with the fall of man in the garden. They're acquainted with the demonic angels, or the fallen angels rather, being cast out of heaven. The angels are, are, are aware of the sinful struggles and how God hates sin and the struggles of men. It was the angels' proclamation that told Joseph he shall save his people from their sins. Not because they're good people, But they needed to be saved from their sins because their sin was so great. And these angels being sinless beings, attendants unto God, proclaiming the glory of God day and night for thousands of years, they know how much salvation is needed among men. And so this song is above everything an outpouring of adoration of what is really happening in Bethlehem in this night. The angels know much more than what the shepherds do. The shepherds are trying to take it in in limited manner. And they're, the way their gray matter can handle it, right? But the angels have seen the workings of God, God's judgment against sin, God's punishing His people for sin, God destroying uh, the known world through Noah. Everything. The angels know about this and they know that what this event is is it's bringing finally, securing salvation for sinful men. What does the word glory mean? We don't use that in our vocabulary a whole lot, Um, maybe as far as outside of a church setting, but it means respect. It means recognition. It means honor, perhaps above all else. And it's saying honor, respect, all of this to God in the highest. Of course, 30 years later, the heavens would be open again and there would be a voice coming out of heaven as our Lord is baptized. And, And the Lord says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He is the second Adam, the last Adam. He succeeds where Adam failed in the garden. Jesus Christ succeeds fully as the last Adam. Glory to God in the highest. To the highest degree, His life and His death on the cross would glorify God's attributes. All of His glorious attributes of His justice that must be completely satisfied. His righteous character not being violated in the least bit in the saving of men. His wisdom with how the plan of salvation would unfold in time. All of the attributes are magnified His sovereignty with how they unfolded at just the right time. How does this display God's glory, this event? Well, He took on real human flesh. He's the Prince of Glory. Uh, The Lord God made man in His image, but now He takes upon Himself this same human image. The angels are amazed at this truth. The hymn writer says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail incarnate! deity depths of mercy that's probably the greatest marvel here the depths of mercy the mercy of God to stoop down to stoop way down to sinful men for the purpose of rescuing them we who were enemies of God wretches who refused to give God the glory yet he stoops down to save a people And it's interesting that this first anthem of praise uh, comes from angels. These are angels, as I said, who have never sinned. They're, they're, they're singing this wonderful theme here, as we've already said, because they're intimately acquainted with the dealings of God and His purposes, and they know about man. They, they look with wonder at, at how they're saved, Peter says. That's a paraphrase, obviously. But it's interesting. It comes from angels. Angels who have never sinned, who have no need of the precious blood of Jesus Christ to atone for their sins because they're sinless. They have no need of a Savior. They have no need of being reconciled to God. And yet they're the ones that first sing this anthem of praise. Their love and their compassion to poor lost men is evident here. It's really, you think of John 3.16, a verse that we kind of pass over quickly, right? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. How did He give Him? He gave Him in the incarnation. That's why we celebrate Christmas. But He gave Him as an offering of sin that whoever should believe on Him shall have everlasting life. We are created to glorify God. And we're created to glorify Him in our lives. Jesus breaks into human history. He has this robe of of humiliation, as it were, as it said in in Philippians 2, as we looked at it. He comes with the purpose not to be served, but to serve others and to redeem a people. How we ought to be overwhelmed with the love and mercy of God. Just at that point right there. That God's love would be so great, as the hymn writer says, the deep, deep love of Jesus. And that his mercy would be magnified in such a way as to stoop down and to save a people that deserved nothing but hell. Do you delight in the glory of God this morning? Do you delight as the angels delight in singing glory to God in the highest? Well, the angels continue their doxology with the phrase in the New American Standard Version, and on earth, peace among men. Now what is peace? (laughs) That's a discussion item, isn't it? Well, sometimes we can think of peace of when we're estranged in a relationship, maybe a family member, maybe a parent or something, and, and there's some form of reconciliation that comes and we say, well, okay, we're at peace now. Um, You children can probably relate to this when you're at odds with your brother and sister and and everything's worked out and you're told to confess your sin to each other and and now you're at peace with your siblings, right? This is not talking about political peace. It's not talking about world peace. Um, This peace goes much, much further than those things that I have just described. What the angels are speaking of is peace with God from the removal of our sin. Peace with God. We are all sinners. We've come short of the glory of God. We are lawbreakers. The law of God represents His glorious character which we have defamed and we sin against on a daily basis. We're great sinners. We're at enmity with God. Ephesians 2, "...and when you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world..." According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest." See, we're a people that is at enmity with God. We're a people that, that we're, we're so selfish by practice, we're selfish by nature, and we tend to live for ourselves and we want to exert our own rights. We don't want to listen to anybody else. We want everything to revolve around us. We want the place, we, we, we want to, we want the place of God. We need to ask ourselves, what does God really think about sin? If we're at enmity with Him, and if we're sinners and we break His law all the time, does God really take sin seriously? Well, look at what happened in the fall in the garden. Look what happened with noahs I've already mentioned. The whole known world being wiped out. Look at Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the first 20 chapters of Genesis, and you already see God dealing very radically with sin. God hates sin. He is holy. He is righteous. And the soul that sins shall die. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. His holiness demands that sin be dealt with. So our great need is peace with God. How can we be reconciled to God? We have the sin problem. And we need to be reconciled to God. We need peace with God. And apart from faith in Christ, you will not find peace with with God. The Word of God describes the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment in His glorified body with eyes as a flame of fire that pierces deep down into the heart of each person. He knows your thoughts, motives, intentions, and all of that. The Word of God speaks of our God being a consuming fire. See, apart from faith in Christ, we're, <laughs> we're lost This is the God, this is the Lord that we will face in that day. But in Christ, having trusted in Christ, having leaned on Him, having beheld Him by faith and clinging to Him, God becomes a warming fire of love and peace. True, lasting, spiritual peace. And this only comes because we're reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5 says, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us this word of reconciliation. You see, brothers and sisters, that's a glorious thing. Being reconciled to God. For 25 years, I hardened my heart. I I stiff-armed the Lord. And finally, He broke my will. Finally, He redeemed me. Finally, He saved me. And to be reconciled to God and to have the peace of God which passes all understanding and to know that my sins have been dealt with is the most freeing thing you'll ever experience in your life. It's a wonderful thing to be reconciled to God. Of course, Isaiah's prophecy tells us that He's the Prince of Peace when we have peace with god we have this true harmony as it will as in the soul we have this 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 tuned song in our soul that is just right that declares the our love and allegiance to the lord by virtue of his reconciliation also that overflows to those around us adding peace in our human relations. Have you ever considered how so many Christians together could have such sweet fellowship coming from all different walks of life and coming from all different backgrounds? We have the common bond of Christ. And we've all been reconciled to God, those of us who are in Christ. And so fellowship is sweet. We had dear friends over who moved away three years ago or so. And and our fellowship, when we were ending in prayer, um, the man commented that what an amazing thing that we can be gone for three years and just have sweet fellowship as though we just saw each other the day before. It's a remarkable thing to have peace with God. It does overflow in our relationships. You see, sinful men, they, they, they try to seek peace. They speak of peace. They try to achieve it. But there will be no peace on earth apart from Christ. It is only in Christ. Christ that we have this permanent peace and we will never lose it once you have it. And we enjoy this peace in this life knowing that our sin is forgiven, knowing that we have sweet communion with God, knowing that we have a high priest that we can come to, that sympathizes with our weaknesses, one who will listen, one who really cares that we can go to. That gives us peace that assures us You can have the most intense trials in this life, and yet if you have this peace, the Lord can bring you through it. And the world is astonished. Those outside of Christ. They cannot understand that. Think of the martyrs of the church. Pick up Fox's book of martyrs and start flipping through that. Look at some of the deaths that these men and women endured. Consider Ridley at the stake with joy, singing songs to the Lord because of the peace that He had. Consider John Huss singing, Son of God, have mercy on me with a smile as He's at the stake and the flames are burning and licking at His flesh and consuming His flesh. I submit to you, brothers and sisters, that's a peace that can only come from God. You can't go home and look through the sale ads to see if Walmart's selling it. You're not going to find it on eBay. This comes from knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and being reconciled to this holy God, knowing that your sins are forgiven. We pray for the persecuted church so much here, and those who are suffering in North Korea and in China and many other places deprived of physical the simple things that we just take for granted you got a warm house and some food deprived of these things some that are being murdered for preaching the gospel for being faithful to declaring the good news of the gospel you can go to your death with peace knowing that you've been faithful to God knowing that it is him who has given you this peace that is lasting but we also have peace within ourselves. What do I mean by that? Our conscience can condemn us. Guilty, guilty, guilty. With Christ, there is no condemnation in Christ. Yes, conviction's a good thing. Yes, we need to be made known of our sin, even as redeemed Christians when we sin. But this condemning, uh, guilty conscience is now taken away. Christ truly is our peace. It comes from Him. He gives peace. And He keeps us in peace through perseverance. Though we may fall, though we may sin, though we have to fall 90 times and confess the same sin, He is faithful to keep us in His grace. This is why the angels are declaring this. This is why there are so many angels. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among men. This is a marvelous. This is a marvelous scene, isn't it? I kind of wish you could rent the DVD or something, and you know, uh, someday we'll we'll see it. We'll be privy to it. We'll understand so much fuller than what we're trying to understand even now. Well, let's move on to the third uh, phrase here. And, and this, I, I will ask the question: Is this peace of which the angels speak for everyone? That's a question that we'll ask and answer. Look at the last phrase with me. On earth, peace among men, and then in the NAS, with whom he is pleased. Another translation of that would be on whom his good pleasure rests. So let's look at this a little bit. First of all, the emphasis is on God. The emphasis is not on men. It's it's God's good pleasure. This is who who, who gets this peace. It's it's on whom God's good pleasure rests. Rest, it displays his divine love unconditionally to men. It is not men of goodwill, as some translations have it. That's a faulty translation. It is not goodwill to all men. That's flip-flopping things around. Um, but it's speaking of a particular people. It's speaking of this peace uh, um, peace among men on earth with whom his good pleasure rest god's good pleasure is extended to sinful men but it's a distinct group here it's very clear in the original this the same root word that speaks of sovereign election this word good pleasure or the word please here in the original here and it's the amazing thing is that god loves the unlovable broken bruised sinners he loves them that's the astonishing thing that's the amazing thing it's the same word that we see twice in Ephesians 1, which is worthy of good study. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Again, in verse 9, it's a similar verse of chapter 1 of Ephesians. It's speaking of God's good pleasure. It's for his good pleasure's sake that he bestows any peace to any sinners, it's for his own good pleasure. This is reserved for those who come to Christ. Again, this is speaking from God's perspective, and on our perspective we know it's those who embrace Christ, those who come to Christ, that's who receive Christ. This peace. This peace goes far beyond our immediate circumstances. It passes all understanding. Sometimes it's unfathomable. The Holy Spirit reveals Christ to us, and we wholly lean on Him and trust Him and cling to Him, never to be forsaken. The angels speak of the source of this peace. It's really what's happening here. And essentially, it's a free gift. And it's an overflow of the mercy and love of God to sinners. You see, many people outside of Christ say that this season brings peace to them. They're in the mall and They hear, you know, Rudolph the Red Nose or something, and then they hear, oh, come all you faithful, and they can associate that with Christmas. Maybe there's some connection to a childhood memory, a time in church or whatever. And and, and even those outside of Christ say, this season just—it's just so peaceful. It just brings peace to my heart. I just feel closer to God. Brothers and sisters, those people are in for disappointment because soon... All the lights come down. All the decorations are removed and stored in boxes for the next 11 months until it's time to put them up again. The Christian, Christmas music stops and the hymns declaring the incarnation and everything goes back to as it was. Many are disappointed because they're outside of Christ. They're trying to find the satisfaction in the things of this world or the decorations of trees or whatever, and rather than looking to Jesus Christ, the one that has come to the world to save sinners. Well, we've considered this angelic praise in verse 14, a, a glorious verse. I hope you'll never see it the same as you read over this story again and again in the years to come. But let's look now briefly at the response of the shepherds and the response of Mary, verses 15 to 20. In verse 15, it says, "...when the angels had gone away from them into heaven." In the original, that speaks of not the angels just like disappearing, but that there was probably some ushering away of the angels. There was probably so many. So even that was a feat in and of itself. Um, to watch when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, "What's the response? Let us go straight to Bethlehem, then, and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us." So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph. The shepherds reasoned, and and they. They went in haste and they wanted to find Mary and Joseph. They did not debate among themselves. Oh, well, wait, somebody's got to, who's going to watch the sheep? Okay, let's draw straws or whatever. No. They left. They went. They wanted to behold this thing. This was such a significant event. And they were—they felt an obligation to convey everything that had been revealed to them to Mary and Joseph. And so they had an obligation. We must go find Mary and Joseph and communicate this thing to them. They were convinced of the truth. See here that they went their way to find Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger and when they had seen this <clears throat> excuse me they made known the statement which had been told them about the child the shepherds were the first one to have this great truth revealed to them and they're also the first ones to proclaim the good news to another to other humans isn't that wonderful now of course Mary and Joseph both had visitations from Gabriel, but it's an amazing thing to think of. You have to understand that the, the, the context of the day, shepherds were despised. It would be, you know, maybe modern vernacular would be to the homeless person. You know, uh, the angels reveal and the homeless people are the first ones to come and proclaim this. You know, it's it's kind of like hard to to fathom, but they had this obligation and they came and they revealed everything as it had been revealed unto them. They made the news known to others. Verse 18, And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. The word wondered there is amazement. They were utterly astonished. They were amazed. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Now, what kind of things was she treasuring in her heart? And what does this speak to us about? Well, maybe it speaks to something of a deeper understanding and assimilating of all the facts as they've come. The angels' visit to Joseph, perhaps she's reflecting back on that. Angels' visit to to, to her, she's reflecting on that, and now the report of the shepherds and this angelic host. And and how do we know that Mary pondered these things in her heart? <laughs> Well, probably Luke had a first-hand interview with her, or it was certainly passed on from somebody very close to Mary. And it actually says, this This is uh, one of three times where it speaks to Mary pondering these things in her heart. Chapter 1 and verse 29, just after the initial um, greeting from the angel, greetings favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And then later in chapter To again. And so we see the response here the response of the shepherds going in haste, the response of Mary pondering these things, treasuring them in her heart, keeping them near her heart as she truly believed them. Well, let's draw a few concluding applications. How we should praise God for the incarnation, give Him glory alone, that He has come. Covenanted with a people and, and has come now and, and saved them by virtue of sending the sinless one, Jesus Christ, to live a life, a life fraught with temptations, fraught with pains and sorrows and hunger and all the human limitations that we have, the Son of God had. And yet, what happened? He never sinned. He lived the perfect life. He was an offering of sin on our behalf. What great mercy! And those of you who are here who do not know the Lord, will you come to Bethlehem here and believe? Will you come? Will you enter into the story as it's revealed in the Word of God? Will you see something of the deep love of God for sinners come and to behold Him? Jesus at the end of His life in a great priestly prayer says, "...I and them, Thou and Me, that they may be perfected in unity." that the world may know that Thou hast sent Me, and didst love them even as Thou didst love Me. Speaking again in that prayer, Jesus is of the great love of God for His people. This is an account of His birth. But we know that He went on to the cross, and as the baby lay in the manger, its sovereign love personified It's a simple baby there, but this baby would live the perfect life. He would grow up and he would ultimately be an offering for sin. But you must repent and you must believe and you must trust that he really did take away sins and that he took away sins for you and to cut off those sins that are pulling you away. Our scripture reading in Hebrews 2, we won't turn to it, but it's it's fascinating to me there. And chapter 2 and verse 16. Look at this verse later if you missed it. But assuredly, He offers hope not to the angels who had fallen. Not to the angels who had fallen. One sin cast them into hell forever. There's no hope for them, but assuredly, He offers help. And the word help there is to seize, to save. He offers help to the descendants of Abraham. And we know all those who were in faith, our descendants of Abraham. It's a fascinating verse. One more application. Brothers and sisters, be determined to tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news that He has come to save sinners. And not just at Christmas time. See, we can learn from the shepherds in this regard that they went with haste to declare this good news. And how we need to do the same. As we have opportunity in the workplace and with our neighbors and with our friends, we're going to be held accountable. We must be as the watchman or the watchwoman, if that's your case, to warn ignorant sinners, to lovingly point them to Christ. There's a world that's aching. There's a world that's hurting. There's disappointments. There's a world that needs Christ. Listen to Richard Baxter, Puritan pastor, what he says. He says, Oh, if you have the hearts of Christians or of men in you, let them yearn towards the poor, ignorant, ungodly neighbors. Alas, there is but a step between them and death and hell, and many hundreds of diseases are awaiting them to seize them. And if they die unregenerate, unsaved, they will be lost forever. Have you hearts of rock? that you cannot pity men such as this? If their houses were on fire, wouldst thou not run up and to help them? And to help them with their very souls is almost at the fire of hell. He goes on later and says, Methinks if by faith we did indeed look upon them as within one step of hell, it would more effectually untie our tongues to declare the goodness of the gospel." How we need to see men and women around us with the eyes of eternity. Not the here and now, but eyes of eternity. That this life is it. And their life could end tomorrow. It could end in an hour. And as you have opportunity, now this doesn't mean you just go in the middle of the mall and start bunching people around and try to get a crowd, but there's, there's opportunities that come to you again and again and again. And how often we say, if only I had time. You know, I've got to... Go get my hair done or I've got to do this or whatever to not make excuses, but to redeem opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ. You say, well, I'm not a great orator. I, I, I'm, I don't have the gift of teaching. You don't need the gift of teaching. If you're in Christ, you have a testimony. I was dead. Now I'm alive. And Jesus Christ did it. It could be as simple as that, hopefully with a few extra sentences. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for meeting with us. Thank you for this wonderful uh, scene in Bethlehem that has been recorded for us. I pray that you would warm our hearts, Lord, to a greater love and appreciation of Jesus Christ and what he has done, in whose name we pray. Amen.